Welcome to the Cybersecurity Defenders podcast, episode number 37. My name is Christopher Luft. I'm one of the co-founders at Lima Charlie, and I will be your host. On today's episode, I'm joined by security engineer Adnan Khan, and we talk about securing the build pipeline and explore some common vulnerabilities in enterprise GitHub configurations. Thanks for being on the show today, Adnan. To get things started, why don't you introduce yourself and tell us what you do? Yeah, thank you very much for having me, Chris. So my name is Adnan Khan. I am a lead security engineer at Praetorian, and I primarily work on Praetorian's red team, but I also do a lot of uh, deep dive application security type of work. From looking at the website, I gather, and maybe this is wrong, but Praetorian is kind of like a red team or pen test as a service then? Yeah, so, so Praetorian is a cybersecurity solutions company. So as a company, we kind of have two sides. One side is a product that we provide to customers called Chariot, which is an attack surface management product. And then there's the services side of the company, which focuses on, you know, red teams, corporate security, cloud security, IoT security. And within that, we do a lot of specific types of engagements to fit our clients' unique security solutions needs. Looking at your CV, I see you're educated as a computer scientist. You have an undergraduate from the University of Pittsburgh and a master's degree from John Hopkins University. How did you get started in tech and what inspired you to pursue an academic education in computer science? Yeah, so, you know, as with a lot of people starting in tech, you know, I had an interest in computers from a very young age, always tinkering around, trying to see how things worked. So just that just kind of lended itself to studying computer science in undergraduate and uh, for my master's education. So just something I was always passionate about. However, I only got interested in security kind of couple of years into my career. And was there something specific that triggered that? Or was it just sort of a job opportunity? And- so it was kind of a mix. So I started off working in defense. So a lot of non-security related, but just generally creating solutions for companies making products for United States DOD. And within that, I kind of moved around and eventually found myself working in a role kind of adjacent to security. And saw some of the cool things people are doing, got to go to DEF CON, I think it was in 2016, and it was just kind of blown away at the kind of research people were doing, the the ways people were finding vulnerabilities, and they just kind of fell in love with InfoSec at that point. Oh, right on. Yeah, there's a lot of passion in the community, and I think it's very infectious. Uh, you have a pretty cool career history with time working on some heavy stuff at Northrop Grumman. Is there anything in your career that particularly stands out to you, something you're especially proud of? Yeah, so I think I had some pretty cool opportunities uh, in my kind of previous life when I used to work as a contractor for the DOD. I think I got to experience some pretty cool things and see how things were done. Obviously, I can't talk about a lot of them, but the experiences I had there really kind of carried over into what I'm doing now into in, in the commercial space where I can talk about the things I do. Mm-hmm. Did you maybe pick up, I know a lot of people that work in the DOD and different government organizations have a strong sense of the mission that we're all on. Did you pick some of that up while you were there? Oh, absolutely. Like being there, like I did learn like just how impactful what we were doing was and also how much bad can happen if we don't prevent some threat actors out there from actually from accomplishing their malicious goals. Like it's, you know, it's different when, you, when you're able to see what, what a bad actor is able to do. And that makes you even more passionate about making sure that they're stopped, even in the commercial space, because they want to do bad things to legitimate companies as well. Very cool. 
All right. So the reason I asked you on the show was because we spoke at B-Side San Francisco just ahead of RSA. You're giving a talk and I found the topic super fascinating and I was hoping we could kind of deep dive into that a little. One of the takeaways I got was DevOps is chaos and the drive for continuous integration and obsession with speed to production introduces a lot of risk. The mantra of move fast and break things does not inspire security confidence. Yeah, basically, I gave a talk at Besides SF called Securing the Pipeline, Protecting Self-Hosted GitHub Runners. And within that talk, I talked about two particular aspects of GitHub Action security. One being the self-hosted build runners themselves, and the other pipeline secrets that are used as part of builds and how a lot of the default configurations kind of are vulnerable to pretty simple attacks that an attacker could use to get secrets, get persistence on a system from where they can conduct further attacks against the company's network. Yeah, almost every company and development shop out there uses GitHub. And like most products out there, it's not meant to be the most secure by default. I think if a lot of people listening were honest, they would have to admit that they probably haven't given the GitHub docs a good study and are probably using a few things they don't fully understand. Would you say that's an accurate statement from what you've observed in your research? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Both uh some of the research I've done, as well as with some on some of the engagements that colleagues and I have operated on, pretty much in every case where we've encountered a client that's using GitHub, mostly clients that are using the cloud-hosted GitHub, but even some clients that are using the on-premises GitHub enterprise server, we've seen a lot of misconfigurations. And beyond that, we've also just seen cases where the client might not fully understand what the intended functionality of a setup is. So when those two things come together, it creates a lot of unique attack paths that an attacker can exploit. So ab absolutely. I'm sure that everybody listening will be familiar with GitHub, but there may be a lot less awareness around GitHub Actions. For people who may not be familiar, can you tell us what GitHub Actions are and how that plays into all of this? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so GitHub Actions is basically GitHub's name for their CI/CD system. So if someone might be familiar with Jenkins, that is essentially what GitHub Actions tries to do as a product. It's having continuous integration, pipelines, deployment. So GitHub Actions is kind of the umbrella that all of that falls under. And this kind of problem isn't unique to GitHub, is it? Do we see this across all kinds of build pipeline tools? So the exact problems might be different, but if you look at other tools like CircleCI or GitLab, they also have solutions for CI/CD, and you'll see that similar misconfigurations will be present, especially when it comes to secrets management. One example is how, for in CircleCI, secrets are handled within something called contexts, and by the default setting, there is any authenticated user within an organization can see all of the contexts. So all someone would need to do for Circle CI, if someone's just using the default, is create a project that uses all the contexts. And each context is essentially a container of environment variables. They can read, the, read all of those out and exfil them. And we've done that on engagements and gotten access to hundreds of secrets for organizations that use Circle CI. That kind of architecture and design decisions are all, are all driven by convenience and not security. Unfortunately, that is the case because tools like GitHub Actions and CircleCI, they, they're very easy to use and they're very user-friendly. 
And that's kind of why organizations adopt those tools so quickly because they they go from Jenkins, which has its own issues, but because it requires so much configuration, people often try to get the configuration right. Whereas something like CircleCI is like, hey, it works great out of the box. It's also insecure out of the box. GitLab similarly will have some issues where secrets need to be set as masked. So they'll have environment variables, but when they're created, someone has to explicitly say, this is a secret, mask it. But in case some cases, someone might not set that optional parameter. So the environment variables are going in unmasked and you could just use an API request to read the plain text values and figure out what you can do with them. We touched on GitHub Actions, but during your talk, you also talked about personal access tokens and the danger of having an employee link their personal account to the corporate one, which was something I did up until recently. Uh, and thanks to you, I've changed that. I'm sure most of our listeners do this. Can you explain personal access tokens and the danger that comes with linking your personal GitHub account with your corporate one? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the background here is that when GitHub started, it was really a tool that focused on smaller companies and open source projects. And it would be very common for college students, open source contributors, people who just wanted to be present on the internet as a developer, just have a GitHub account. So that from there, as GitHub moved to become an enterprise software solution, a lot of the users still had their same GitHub accounts. So for accessing organizations, it became very common for employers to just link some employee's GitHub account to that organization. And that would allow an employee to work on their employer's code projects. Again, they would all be private, but when they log into GitHub, they're logging in with their personal account. Similarly, GitHub API tokens up until fall of 2022 were linked to specific accounts. And these would just be OAuth tokens that a developer would create. Depending on the organization's configuration, they might have had to authenticate those tokens to their employer. So by default, they couldn't access it. But that requires an employer to be have the SAML SSO integration configured, be on the enterprise plan, and have it enforced. Sometimes you'll see organizations that have it enabled, but it's not enforced. So, <laughs> so depending on how that account's connected, it might not actually be required for the developer to explicitly authorize those tokens. Yeah, and I bet you most people listening realize that they haven't done any of those things. <laughs> yeah, it's we, we've seen a mixed bag in terms of what we had clients say. A lot of clients will have it configured properly. We've definitely seen a few cases where they think they had it configured properly, but they actually didn't have it enforced. So it was kind of a mixed bag where some accounts required it, some accounts didn't. There really is a big benefit to making sure that SAML SSO integration is enforced because it enables you as an organizational admin to go and inventory which tokens have access to your organization. This includes classic tokens and you can revoke those grants. So if you have like evidence that there's a malicious activity associated with the user, you can just go ahead and revoke all their tokens just as a safety precaution. Yeah. And just as a quick aside, you mentioned classic tokens. So that is like, I've seen a lot of organizations over the last few years go from you know, one kind of access token that just had full permissions to a new system where they have fine-grained permissions that can be turned on and off. Is that the same with GitHub? Yeah. So GitHub has permission configurations for the classic tokens as well. However, the key difference with the newer fine-grained tokens is, is that it can have 
very granular restrictions. So you could create a token that only has read access to one specific repository. And it doesn't have any access to, say, organizational metadata, the user lists. So if someone compromised it, it would be very hard for them to do anything. And also it'd be very hard for them to learn what that token even had access to without additional external context. One of the things you also mentioned that caught my attention was that there was a way to list and download individual files from a repo that required SSH keys without a key in place by using these APIs and tokens. Can you expand on that a little? Yeah, so this was actually something interesting one of my colleagues ran into as an issue on an assessment they were doing, and we worked a bit to figure out how they can get around that restriction. So what we found out was the repository contents API, which is essentially under the hood works very similar to how if you just browse to a GitHub repository, you can view the files in your web browser. So what this API lets you do with a personal access token is list files in a repository and individually download certain files as base64 blobs. So it would be a lot slower to pull down an entire repository, but theoretically you could accomplish that same goal but in many cases, from an attacker's perspective, you're not really interested in everything, depending on what, what your goal is. You might just be interested in a very specific file from a repository. So this can allow you to, say, pull down just a workflow file, just a config file, and read it, even if you only have a personal access token. And that organization has set it up so they think that only users with uh, the private key configuration can actually download it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so they could very easily get some intelligence on how the organization is structured just from getting those config files. Um, I think to finish off listing the gaps you mentioned in your talk, uh, can we talk a little bit about GitHub Action Secrets and what the problem is with them? Absolutely. So what we've seen is GitHub Actions Secrets, there's a difference between how they actually work and what how people think they work. And that's kind of where a lot of the problems related to them start to manifest. So the default configuration for GitHub Action Secret, and so there's not really many ways to change this, but it's set up so secrets can be attached at the organization level or the repository level. So any secrets that are configured at the repository level, any user that has the ability to write to that repository, and if that can run a new workflow that uses all of those secrets. Additionally, they can use an API call to list the secrets. So within organizations, it's pretty common that developers can create branches and repos, but say the developer branch, the main branch, those are protected. But this doesn't really get impacted by that because if the secret is, say, a deploy secret that's only used in main, that developer just has to create a new branch create a new workflow within that branch that uses the secret. And now they have something that the, the repository owners think is only used or inaccessible by administrators. Yeah. Wow. That's uh... <laughs> something else. I think that's super important for people writing detections, you know, Lima Charlie and Jess GitHub logs. And I feel like I should be able to write detections about whatever I want, but there are some shortcomings around what is getting logged. Can you expand on the API logging gaps with GitHub? There's kind of two types of gaps over there. So one is there's just some defaults that aren't enabled. For example, IP address logging with associated with each event, by default, that's off. So 
if you're an organization that wants to know if someone from a country that's associated with a tax is using someone's token, you, by default, if you don't have that setting enabled, you won't know where different actions are coming from in the audit log. So making sure that that feature is enabled is pretty important. On the other side, one of the gaps that exists in the audit logging is that vast majority of GET requests don't generate any audit log events. And this kind of problem feeds into a situation where an attacker can enumerate and learn about what an organization has, how it's set up, learn about vulnerable repositories, learn about where secrets are in different repos, learn about organization-level secrets, and basically get get the entire lay of the land, come up with an attack plan, and then execute. So because a lot of those GET requests aren't logged, once an attacker starts, that's the only time you actually have anything to even start alerting on. So talking minutes, hours, that puts security teams and defenders in a really difficult position to actually try to stop an attacker. And ideally, you want to catch someone during their enumeration phase so you have time and you're not you're not falling behind in that incident loss process. I think you also mentioned that there is a beta of some updated log formats coming out soon. Yeah, so this was pretty good to see. And it was actually not too uh, long before you giving the talk that, that uh, saw this, but essentially they've just started a private beta for enterprise REST event logging. So what this means is that if someone subscribes to this new feature, then they can get a fire hose of every single API request that's made to assets associated with their GitHub enterprise tenant. So that would include those GET requests, and that could allow someone to start building out detection engineering to catch attackers before they're in a, a place where they're causing harm. Oh, very cool. That sounds like something interesting that anybody listening to who wants to to move first and early on something, there it is. The last one before we get into one of the scenarios you ran through in your talk was you talk a bit about self-hosted runners in the context of these GitHub action pipelines and what makes them a likely attack vector. Can we quickly go over what, what that is? Yeah. So self-hosted runners are build agents that are hosted by an end client selves as opposed to being hosted by GitHub within Azure Cloud. So these are runners that are just running a .NET core agent. And this essentially will pull build information from GitHub. It will run through workflows and essentially do the same thing that the cloud-hosted agents will do, but on a client's machine. The risk here is that by default, the builds are not ephemeral. There's no segmentation between one build or the next. So something can, a build can fork off a process that lives beyond the build. So that process can now alter and learn, get information from subsequent builds, including secrets that those builds use. And is one of the ironies here that self-hosting these runners is seen as more secure by the people that go through the trouble of setting them up? Is that the motivation for, for doing this or is it a cost thing? So there's different motivations. So there's cost, there's the, like you had mentioned, the concept that you're, you're in control of your builds and also integrations. So for example, organizations that might be using internal artifact repositories that don't want to set up complex firewall rules to allow agents that are in the cloud to be able to push to those repositories, it sometimes makes it easy for organizations to transition 
to those, especially if they've been using on-prem build systems in the past, such as Jenkins or Bamboo or something like that. A lot of organizations, this is just a natural transition to use those. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. One of the scenarios you outlined in your talk that I think really demonstrates how vulnerable a lot of organizations probably are is where you used a social engineering attack to gain access to some logs, which is the type of request that I don't think many people would spend too much time thinking about before granting access. How did this work and what were you able to do? Yeah. So what happened in this scenario was we needed to get inside of a network and we ended up phishing someone who had access to Splunk logs. So one of these logs captured command line parameters and there was a GitHub access token on some of these command line parameters. So it was just a case of getting access to someone who had access to Splunk and then their access to Splunk was probably a little over-provisioned and then the logs being ingested into Splunk weren't being sanitized properly. So that kind of combination of factors allowed us to get a personal access token. So that kind of set the stage for the next attack that that I demonstrated in the talk. Uh, yeah, and just to summarize what the notes that I took from that is, uh, so you get a personal access token from the log access, then use that token to enumerate the API, which we already covered that you can do. In there, you discover they're using self-hosted runners. And once you know they're using self-hosted runners, you push a malicious workflow and set it to run on the self-hosted runner, which ran your malicious code, which spun up your own Docker container in that environment, which gave you persistence in a C2. And then from there, you were actually able to move laterally and escalate privileges into the wider org. Is that, did you get out of the build pipeline? Oh yeah, that's 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 exactly how that worked. And yeah, I mean, in that particular assessment, obviously can't go into too much detail because it was one we operated on for our client, but we did eventually end up getting pretty substantial privileges from that internal foothold. Wow, I think I just had shivers go down my back. <laughs> <laughs> I think supply chain attacks are going to become more and more common. You know, we've seen it with the 3CX that just happened, which is like a supply chain attack on a supply chain attack. And I think this vector is going to become super attractive because in a way it's, you know, a supply chain attack on a supply chain attack. Um, there is a case for stealing IP, but I think what makes this attractive is being able to insert malicious code into trusted products. Is this your takeaway? And do you have anything to add on what we've talked about so far? Yeah, I think supply chain attacks are definitely going to increase in frequency. And I, and I think part of it, there's kind of two prongs to that. One, there's a lot more research now on what the gaps in CICD supply chain systems are. And two, Advanced threat actors are also seeing how much they can accomplish by conducting these kinds of attacks. And so you're going to see an increased attack attempts on developers to try to poison their build environments, to try to even get a foothold on their laptops, and from there see what they do. So I think, I definitely think over the next few years, you'll see these kinds of attacks increase in frequency, as well as severity in terms of what end goals attackers are able to accomplish. Well, that kind of leads into my last question that I have for you, and it's the one I ask of everybody on the show. It can be as wide or as narrow as you want. Uh, do you have any predictions for the future? Okay, well, in terms of the future, I think slowly organizations are need to start looking at CI/CD systems, like such as GitHub Actions or GitLab, with the same kind of you know care that organizations right now look at, say, 
AWS IAM or their cloud configurations, like these systems often end up providing the same level of access to those cloud systems. So they really need to be looking at CI/CD systems with just as much care and make sure they have this. They are up to the same security standards as their you know AWS or GCP environments. There's a lot to think about in this one. So thanks so much for being on the show, Adnan. This is some really fascinating and valuable research you're sharing with the community, and I think it's going to be something we have to contend with a lot more in the future. All right. Again, thank you very much for having me. Yeah, and for anybody listening, I will link his full talk at B-Side San Francisco in 2023 on this subject in the show notes. It's definitely worth watching if you're in the business of protecting organizations. He discusses a bunch of different GitHub vulnerabilities and attack vectors that you probably want to know about. So take care, everybody, and be safe. And that concludes episode 37 of the Cybersecurity Defenders podcast. If you have any feedback or ideas for future topics, please send an email to defenders at limacharlie.io. You can access the intel we talk about on the show in real time and join the conversation on the Lima Charlie community Slack channel at slack.limacharlie.io. If you've enjoyed the show, please consider sharing it with someone or leaving a rating or review. And don't forget to subscribe on whatever platform you're listening from. Thanks for listening in, and we'll see you on the next episode.